0: Hello, and welcome to Talking and Show, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. Hi, and Mimi Lewis is joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. Hey, Zahava. Hi. It makes me so happy to see both of you, especially when it's been a while since we recorded. So I'm excited to be here with you all. Um, and we have what we hope is a very chill, uh, a chill podcast this month. Our first topic is beyond the pale, a recent episode of the TV show Finding Your Roots. And for our second topic, we're talking about our favorite verses from Tanakh and other Jewish aphorisms. So, um, beyond the pale, uh, Finding Your Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. is a show on PBS, which var- in which various celebrities learn about their ancestors in these books of life uh, assembled by genealogists and researchers and hosted by Henry Louis Gates, Jr. In a recent episode called Beyond the Pale, get it, Pale of Settlement, actor G- Jeff Goldblum, NPR shows, show host Terry Gross and podcaster Mark Marin <laughs> each learned about their Eastern European Jewish roots. Uh, I, I was so excited to talk about this because I don't watch the show all the time, but I kind of love it whenever I do watch it. So I was happy to have an excuse to watch it. Um, but now I have like a lot of things to say. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So yeah. What did you, what did you all think? So how about this was your idea to cover. So why don't you uh, tell us what you thought? I brought this
1: up not because I watched the show. I've actually never seen it before, but because I stumbled across um, an article about the episode on JTA. And I'm like, first of all, I think it's, for lack of a better word, kind of adorable that it is a Jewish news item that there was a TV show that featured three Jews. Um, but here we are discussing it. So I guess we're validating that assessment. Um, and I was interested because I too am a product of pale of settlement Jews, um, with only a vague notion of my forebears. And I thought it would be interesting to see three parallel, but not totally parallel stories traced back because it, creates this kind of context where you can imagine a version of that for yourself if that's your background as well. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, The some of it is a little bit like seeing three very different brands of celebrity and how they react to this sort of thing. So that's part of mm-hmm. it. It's sort of like the the reality show fun of it. But some of it is just seeing how this tracing happens, um, how they work stuff out. And some of it they know. And some of it is like, we surmise, like other people from this area, that he probably traveled through this port. Um, so it did make me wonder how solid all that information was, because some of it really seemed like very informed conjecture.
2: Yeah.
0: Interesting. What about you, Mimi? What did you think?
2: Zahava put it so eloquently, but the feeling I had, it, I actually felt really jealous. And, and it's, it's a similar um, story for me, you know, a family that I know is from like, the former Soviet Union area, my my father's family had this phrase that we're from somewhere between Minsk and Pinsk, which like roughly meant, we don't really know what town, but like a little place. Um, By the way, I totally have I've...
1: forebears from the area around Minsk and Pinsk.
2: For what it's <laughs> worth. There we go. <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't, right? <laughs> um, and I, I just felt re- like I really... I want somebody to make me that book. Like it just, I thought it was really beautiful. Um, and I loved, I, I think, um, I loved the moments where they were able to find a particular person. It might've been a second cousin twice removed, but to, to really find a person who um, whose story they could trace from that little town in Poland or that, you know, oil, oil town in Galicia, Um, just just to give the place a story, Um, because for all three of these people, you know, their stories start in the pale of settlement, but eventually they're their direct line comes to the United States, and that's where they know a little bit more. And for me, the, the history that I'm so interested in is of the time in the, quote, mother country. Um, and those people, of course, relatives who were left there and whose story was we no longer know. So, yeah, I, I found myself really like I, I found that it ignited in me a curiosity for my own family's stories.
0: Um, So I feel like we should give just like a very short synopsis of each of the three stories. So Jeff Goldblum, we learn about his grandfather, who turns out to have maybe burned down a building for insurance reasons in West Virginia, where he was living at the time, um, and then uh, died of a heart attack in the courtroom where he was being charged with this crime. Um, we learn about Terry Gross's family from a small town in Poland and in particular about a cousin of hers who died in a concentration camp. Um, and we learn about Mark Marin's family who turns out to have come from Galicia where they were, um, oil, oil purveyors, <laughs> um, and then moved to, um, Charleston, South Carolina, I believe, where um, his great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather seems to have been a baker slash small-time unsuccessful criminal. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Do you think that's a fair assessment of each of their stories? Yeah, there
2: there were a few other pieces that I really loved, um, like... There was a story about Jeff Goldblum's family. So his dad fought in World War II um, for the Americans. And the show found a second cousin twice removed who was fighting for the Soviets also in World War II. And the, the parallel there was very moving that they here was this family so far removed, but really in the same place at the same
0: time, fighting for the same existence. So I think I zoned out a little bit at that point because one of my takeaways was like, oh my Lord, I never want to be in a room with Jeff Goldblum. (laughs) (laughs) He is so annoying and so self-centered. It's like, I don't... he does a thing where he kind of, like, claims that he feels emotional and, and that, like, he feels connected to Judaism. And I was thinking to myself as I was watching it, like, it's funny that you're an actor because I don't buy this at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, it just felt like the fakest of fake. Um, so I think, I, like, at some point I was like, I don't want to hear more about you and your family. Yeah. <laughs> <stuff." laughs> I did kind of like hearing about
1: his early life experiences dealing with a bully in Hebrew school, though.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I also didn't believe that. Like, even as he's telling this story, in in the story, like, his mom teaches him how to beat up a kid, and then... And he's like, but there's another kid who's always with this guy, and she's like, don't worry, I'll take care of that kid. And she basically, like, holds... The other kids so that <laughs> so that Jeff Bo- Goldblum can beat up his Hebrew school bully. Like, I don't know if I believe that. Yeah. I mean, it's a good story. I could see why he told it. I was just like, yeah. Okay, so putting aside the fact that I learned yesterday that I really don't like Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I thought that one of the most interesting things about this show was actually um, Henry Louis Gates' assessment of what a Jewish thing is (laughs) like a couple of times he would be like, well, this is how, you know, that's the thing about Jews is like, we, the, the Jewish idea of like, you want your children to do better and you want them to like go out to seek opportunities. And I, it really made me think like, that's not wrong. Like, I don't think that's a poor assessment of like, is it, or is it not a Jewish thing? But also I was like, I don't think that's unique to Jews. Right. Like, is there any group that's like, children, we don't want you to do better. Like, stay here, even if things are terrible. I suppose there are places that are like that, but I just don't think that that's like a, in general, like, the reason migration happens is because people want to seek opportunities elsewhere. So I thought it was kind of funny to hear him talk about Jewish Jewish ideas and there were a couple of times where he was like like a Jewish thing where he was like explaining Jewish things to the people that he was talking to and I was just like none of it felt like super off to me I but I just I felt kind of like I wondered what that felt like for him and for them because he was mm-hmm. talking to three Jewish people and he was like explaining this is what Jews did. (laughs) And I was just like, huh, that's that must have been weird. It made me wonder if
1: that's part of what he sees as his role as the host of the show to make sure that he pulls out the thematic through line from the various guests, because it does seem like the way the show is formatted, they have two or usually three people whose stories are to a degree related. And so it seemed like he might have been really pushing the things that he saw as the commonality, but the commonality that had organized the show was not like people whose families immigrated from Eastern Europe. It was people whose Jewish families had immigrated from Eastern Europe. And so he was really, um, really pushing that. But I did think it was interesting that essentially no aspect of Judaism as a religion came up at all right. in any of these three stories, um, that all of the forebears were, okay, the, these are Jews as a somewhat oppressed or downtrodden ethnicity in their um, European villages of origin and, you know, Jews as sort of a plucky upstart immigrant community in the United States, more or less. Um And there were moments where it was like, oh, wow, I had no idea that Jews were even in South Carolina, but it was all like peoplehood and ethnic notions of Judaism and not even a reference to the fact that Judaism is a religion as well. Not that it's not also an ethnic and, and communal identity, but like, I just thought that was interesting. I didn't object to it. I mean, I think that that's probably an accurate rendition of a lot of people's immigrant experiences, that it really had nothing to do with religious identity per se. I just thought it was interesting.
0: Yeah, I agree. I also thought about that.
2: I thought that that was maybe more about the three guests. Um, Because to me, Jeff Goldblum, Terry Gross, and Mark Maron, they are all, they have all Sort of explicitly talked about how their Jewish identity is defiantly cultural in nature and not religious, um, and it's actually something that annoys me about Mark Marin and Terry Gross. I mean, Jeff Goldblum is annoying for other reasons, mostly most of which Tamar already <laughs> described. Henry Louis Gates was trying to discuss connection to Judaism or connection maybe to the religion with. Terry Gross and Mark Maron, and neither of them were interested in taking the bait. I mean, he he explicitly asked Mark Maron, "Does this make you think about yourself as a Jew any differently?" And Mark Maron was like, "Well, I'm definitely a Jew. Like, that's it. That's that. That to me, like, because I've also heard them talk about their identity." In ways that are unsatisfying in other venues. I was just sort of like, yeah, of course. Of course, they don't want to talk about anything beyond, um, I don't know, bagels and comedy or something. One
1: thing that Mark Marin does say, though, and I don't think it's a grand new insight, but it is poignant in the moment, is when he hears about the way his mother's family um, left the Russian, Russian territory after a series of pogroms, basically that, you know, he says something along the lines of no matter how religious you are or how Jewish you feel or don't feel that, um, my reality, my life has been defined in some major way by antisemitism. Um, and while it is true that like some Jewish <laughs> Americans had their forebears come purely in search of Opportunity. I think that many, if not most, of us have at least one branch of our family would not be here if they weren't fleeing some kind of anti-Semitism, um, and so that resonated mm-hmm. in the moment because to hear it from somebody like Mark Maron, who I just don't think of as the person from whom that insight is going to come, um, it's a little unavoidable when you trace back any American Jew more than one generation
2: yeah well certainly in the ashkenazi american jew I and mean, i guess spartic too yeah.
1: i think that's probably true yeah, as right, too. Yeah. yeah
0: so neither of you have someone who like got really into genealogy in your family who has like a deep backstory about your family
2: i actually do but for me it's on my christian side of the family and in my husband's family i don't totally there. There is that uncle, but I don't actually know what he's gleaned
1: in my family. My father's side of the family, um, his parents were both Holocaust survivors, so we have a, a couple of Holocaust stories, but not much from before then at all. And then my mother's side of the family. She has a cousin on her father's side who has excavated a bunch of family history, um, doing the kind of thing that this show does, but with more informal resources, more like Ancestry.com and people in Facebook groups providing translations and things like that. And actually, my mother had shared with me a write-up that this cousin had made um, about a year ago now. And I actually read read it much more carefully after watching this episode than I had previously because I was interested. And it was interesting to see how much it paralleled the sort of process of we were able to match this marriage record and trace back this maiden name to this other person and see how this family name changed. And reading it more carefully, it was also interesting to see how one or two pieces of family lore I had, she basically dismissed Mm. or debunked as, you know, oh, this person's name wasn't changed by sailors on the boat over this, you know, it's just like the family name evolved over a couple of generations or a couple of things like that, that um, when you haven't done the tracing and you just have that oral tradition, you might have a a slightly gauzier version of history.
0: I guess I'm surprised because like there are a bunch of people on both sides of my family that have gotten like very into genealogy. Um, And I know that it's a really big thing just in general now, um, which is, I think a part why the show is so successful. Um, And I always find this kind of thing of like learning about your own genealogy to be like a little interesting, but also I, I guess like I do kind of sympathize with the fact that like, It doesn't seem like Terry Gross or Mark Marin walked away from this thinking like anything really changed for them. Mm, Yeah. You know, Um, I mean, I will say Jeff Goldblum did claim that he was going to be more interested in Judaism, but I super did not buy it, Um, (laughs) as I mentioned already. Um, But yeah, the other two didn't claim to be that changed by it. And I think that that is the most common response. Like, it's kind of interesting. Or it might not be. It's like there's probably someone interesting in your family history, but like, you know, narrowing it down probably takes some time um, and you may not find that person. And even if you do find that person, like, what are you what are you hoping to get from it? I think there are like something that I think is interesting is finding out that somebody in your family history did something really bad. And thinking about like how do you sort through that, excuse me, like what is the legacy that comes with that, and how do you how do you process it, even though it's like of course you're not responsible for something that happened you know a hundred years before you were conceived or whenever it happened, but it may I can imagine kind of like trying to think about like what is my stake in this bad thing that happened um and also i like it's interesting to hear about like the professions the surprising professions um and histories of people in your family but i do think it's hard to make the leap from like you know finding out that you're great, great, great grandfather was an oil man in Galicia to being like, this changes me in some way. (laughs) Like, what is that going to do? So I I think that's, that's the challenge. Um, I will say that a cool thing about genealogy right now is that you can like find branches of your family that you got, separated from at some point. Um, so my dad is really into 23 and me. And I think like, whatever the, the, um, ethics of 23 and me is like a whole different podcast that I'm not qualified to speak to. But one thing that he found is that he had these cousins and it turns out basically that his grandmother who, um, immigrated from Russia, um, her, she had a brother who uh, stayed in Russia and died at some point, and they just never heard from him again. They didn't know what happened. Um, but it turned out before he died, he got married and had children, and they just never knew about it because it happened before when he couldn't get in touch with them. And my dad was able to connect with this whole branch of the family because he figured out that they were connected through 23andMe. And they live like not even that far from my dad. Like he was able to like spend an afternoon with these people who are, I don't know how to do the math. Second cousins, first cousins once removed, something like that. So it's like not, not a really distant relationship. Right. Um, so that's, that's cool. But I think that it is hard to get really exercised about things that are so distant from you and that are not like super dramatic.
1: That actually raises for me, I think these are kind of two different strands of family history investigation, the historical research, trying to trace it back by looking at birth records and gravestones and military records versus the cheek swab Mm -hmm. Mm route of trying to trace your family. And for me, I see why they're related, but they feel like very different things to me somehow. One of them has this, I don't know which one feels more true to me. Like the 23 Me thing has this veneer of scientific precision. It feels sort of, I don't know that it's fake, but totally unreal that... Like, oh, I found out that I'm, you know, 172nd Pacific Islander or something. Um, I had no notion of that in my family tree. This is not true. I haven't done 23 me. I have no idea. Um, um,
0: I did. But, and I was like, ooh, uh, something, there's going to be something cool. And then it was 99.9% Eastern European. <laughs> I was like, Shocker. Oh, that's the most boring <laughs> result possible. <laughs> I mean, but in a way, I
1: feel like the notion of finding out that you're that there's something else in your genes is almost a th- threatening prospect when my notion of my Jewishness is that it's sort of an uninterrupted gene, pa- like passed down over generations. Um it, I have this sort of visceral discomfort with the notion of finding out something contrary. And that's one of the reasons I've resisted doing that. And I don't know. I haven't seriously interrogated that feeling, but I think it's there. And versus this trace back of records and ancestors rather than genes, it's less precise, but it feels more real to me in the sense that you're that there's a chain right you're going generation by generation rather than just seeing like what wound up in your DNA at the end of the story
0: I think that it really has to do with what stories are you looking for so i think uh jews especially jews who are actually like invested in judaism as a religion we have like the whole thing of our religion is like we have a shared story like our we have a lot of stories that we tell together constantly that we think of as the stories that hold us together and we also have stories of Jewish history of what it's like to be Jewish in different times and in different places and that is such a strong idea that's something that really like holds Jews together and i felt like this episode and and so and i think that people who are really invested in who get really excited About like 23andMe and finding out that they're like, whatever, 2% Pacific Islander or that they like finding on 23andMe their, you know, the village where their Welsh heritage seems to come from or something. I think that comes from a desire to have a story without one. Like, I think that that is something that is very attractive um, particularly to people who don't have a like uh, a narrative going along that they adhered closely to culturally or religiously, because it makes them feel kind of grounded in history in a way that I think a lot of Jews come by in other ways. And I think that that's kind of what was playing out in this um, in this episode. That these three people are people who think of themselves as culturally Jewish, but they aren't actually at all grounded. They're certainly not grounded in Jewish religion and the Judaism, we might call it. Um, and they're also not grounded in really Jewish history or a story of their family. And so the idea behind this show is to give them that story and then kind of watch them process what it means to suddenly have the story that they can use to ground themselves in history. Um, And I think that's a cool idea, but I did kind of walk away from it thinking, like, I don't need this because, I mean, both because I have amateur genealogists in my family who've done a lot of this work, but also because, like, this story doesn't impact. Like, finding out that my, like, four great-grandfather, like, fought in a Russian army and then, like, his house burned down is not going to have... a big impact on me because like I have always understood that his life would have been very difficult and full of antisemitism and poverty. <laughs> and it's not like news to me. Yeah. I think there's
2: a way in which, um, at least for me, the ignited interest in genealogy is in part like I have this vague story of like, yeah, my Jewish side of the family is from Minsk and Pinsk, you know, from like Eastern Europe, some place. Um, But, you know, there are some people who are like, my family is from Lithuania. My family is from Poland. My identity is this kind of Jew. Um, And it you know, for, for a lot of people, like which region of this huge area of Eastern Europe that you're from also kind of dictates like, what are the, the minhags? What are the traditions of your family? Do you stand during Kiddush or do you sit during Kiddush? And I'm like, oh, I have no idea. We barely did Kiddush. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, you know, when you're searching for, Yeah, you know, I have a, I have the broad sense, but in some ways I would like a little bit finer detail and yeah, that's, that's where this is interesting to me at least.
0: Would either of you go back and watch more episodes of the show, not necessarily focused on Jews?
1: I think it might be more interesting in a sense for me to watch the ones not focused on Jews because I watched all three of these and I'm like, yep, those are basically a version of the story that I might expect right. other than the fact that other than like the right. Galician oil worker, but, um, it, I think it'd be interesting. It's, it's a very concrete and accessible way of just learning some history. Mm-hmm. And I appreciated that.
0: I've watched a handful of episodes in the past and I think, yeah, they're really, I, I have liked past episodes more than I liked this one. And I think for similar reasons. There's a really good episode about um, Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick who are married to each other and also spoiler in the episode find out that they're like distant cousins <laughs> um, among among other things <laughs> but it's cool because they both have um like lo- their families have long histories in the United States. I think I think that the show works best for me when I am learning about... A time and a culture that I don't know that much about, or a history that I don't know that much about. And I found, like Zahava, I found this to be kind of unsurprising. But the show was good. And poor Henry Louis Gates having to sit through (laughs) Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Goldbluming it up. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Zahava, take it away. So
1: I recently ordered a gift for a friend on Etsy um, who is making a professional transition in her life. And I ordered uh, an, a special calligraphy print of the passage of, of Mishnah from Pirkei Avot, lo alecha, um, lo likmor, v'lo ata ben chorin li batel mi meaning um, you're not obligated to finish the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And this... I thought would be meaningful to her professional transition and something that, um, that she would value. And as I was doing this, I'm thinking, Judaism has a saying for everything. Um, and I think that a lot of us who have done some level of text study in our lives or just encountered Jewish text as a person sitting in shul, listening to Torah reading or whatever it is, have often encountered passages, lines that, Resonated, um, and I definitely have a few of those that have stuck with me over time, and that I go back to over and over as reference points for an idea or something defining that I personally relate to. And I was just curious, what what Jewish lines, what great aphorisms or Torah verses or things of that nature um, are like the the ones that you go back to in your
0: lives? Well, I think you have to tell us yours. First is, is the one that you got for your friend?
1: I'm, I'm pro that one, obviously, but I think that, um, there are a couple more specific ones. I'll, I'll do a first one and then we'll, um, maybe we'll do a round robin. I've got a couple that I could go to. Um, so one of my favorite psukim I'll just say that the word for verse in Torah is pasuk, but it is the thing that I say that is perhaps most Ashkenazi sounding. So I'm just going to say pasuk because that's how it's going to come out. So one of my favorite psukim, um is the pasuk in the book of Esther. Um, it's uh, chapter four. It's actually the second half of verse 14. <inaudible> Who knows if it is for this time that you arrived in the monarchy in the palace in a position of power um and to me that's a real as somebody who works in public policy i've always thought that if i ascend to a position of like true and genuine influence i should like have this on my wall um to as a as a reinforcer of this could be the moment like this could be the reason that i'm here this is the reason that i have this influence that every moment that that comes up, I need to be really conscious of this could be my window to do the right thing. Um, and like, maybe God put me in this moment just for this very position. So, um, I've always loved that Pusuk and it's, um, it's, meaningful to me. And Esther, in general, is a book that when you hear it, you listen very, very closely. And there's a lot of great stuff in there. There's a lot of great stuff, especially for people who are interested in government and politics and um, national dynamics. But that particular line is one that's always stuck with me.
2: I love that. I love that. Um, So the the line that I have just been chewing on for a really long time, um, I'm also going to be quoting from Pierre K. Avot. But it's Ezehu Ashir Hasameach Bechelko, who is rich, one who is happy with what he has or what she has. Um, And I I think, well, the line has been important to me in large part because my dad's name was Rich. um, And when he passed away, I, you know, was just hungry for something to to hold of him um, so I got that engraved on a piece of jewelry but it's also I mean I, I love the reminder that um, that it's not that there are times when it's really important just to reflect on what you have and to be satisfied I can get so caught up in searching and trying to gain and what do others have that I need um, but yeah what makes you happy is actually what you already have of being content.
0: I think mine is kind of related to yours, Mimi. So um, mine is from um, Devarim and um, it's because the the thing is very close to you in your mouth. Um, And in your heart to do it. And I think about it. I I used to have it on a piece of jewelry, which actually I lost. And I have been like looking into getting a replacement. But like I got the piece of jewelry in Israel a long time ago. And like the price (laughs) has gone up so much. Plus to have it shipped from Israel that I've been kind of hesitating. I think about it because it similarly is this idea of like the striving that you might feel that you need to do, the kind of um, looking out in the world and um, feeling like you don't have the answer is actually um, not true. The thing that you need is, is already in your heart and in your mouth and you have to do it. Like I, I like I like that it's both like you have what you need and is also like you have to do the thing. Um, I find that to be very Mm -hmm. both reassuring and motivating um, and kind of like empowering to be like, oh, lasso toe, like you have to go do the thing. Um, And I and I love it. And I love. So it comes right after um, a couple of sukim that are like the Torah is not like way up in the sky, they should find, send someone out to go up to try and find it or way across the oceans that you should send someone to try and get it. And I also find that to be very evocative, like this idea that like the whatever Torah is like, it's not, it's not far. It's close somehow wherever you are, it's always close to you. And I find that to be like, beautiful and powerful. Zahava, you said we should do a round robin. So you got another another one for us. Yeah. Well, I have two more things. So, but this one is the the lighthearted
1: one, which is that this is not this this isn't like a deep, resonant one. So much as I think this is the cutest pasuk in Tanakh. Um, and so, in Sefer Bereshit, um in chapter uh, chapter twenty four. Um, Verse sixty four. I had to.
0: Is it Rivka and the camel?
1: It is Rivka and the camel. <laughs> See, like how much? I was like, how much would be in the category like, of cute?
2: <laughs> it is cute. It's so cute. I okay, like, so I what it is for,
1: we could for do those a, like, who are who are not with us uh, on this one is that when um, when. Uh, Abraham's servant, Eliezer, goes to find a wife for, for Yitzchak, for Isaac. Um, he brings back Rivka, Rebecca, and they arrive. And it says, Vatisa, Rivka, at Eneha. Rivka lifts her eyes, Vatera, at Yitzhak, And she sees Yitzchak, Vatipol, Me'al gamal, And she falls off her camel. And it's just like the cutest, the cutest moment of like the, the you didn't know that the Torah had meat cutes. But in fact, <laughs> here it is. Um, and I do like Rivka and Yitzhak have um, have the sort of unique, truly monogamous uh, relationship among the patriarchs. And there's something about their connection that feels like more real people to me. Um, and it begins with this moment. So I really like that.
0: I love it. That is good. Did you ever have a teacher who tried to tell you that, like, it wasn't that she fell off the camel, but that she just, like, got off quickly? Because I definitely heard that. Like, I was definitely told, like, it's not that she fell off. It was just, like, how women got off camels was t (laughs) pull. And I was like, I... I, that seems like apologetics. (laughs) Yeah. Also, what's, what's
1: the need for apologetics? Like embrace it. It's, it's adorable. Right. Exactly. It is cute.
2: I have one that I'm not going to do a great job explaining because in part, what I love about it is just how it sounds, not necessarily what it means. Um, but there's a phrase that comes up in Gemara, and it goes "Tefasta meruba lo Tefasta," which means if you're if you're reaching for a lot, you haven't reached anything, you haven't gotten anything. Um, and there's like a there's a legal interpretation of this, which is like if you need to make a legal proof of an argument, you should use the one that's the most specific, not the like big, broad. Am I doing this right,
1: Zahava? I am nobody's authority on, on Talmudic principles. Trust okay. me.
2: <laughs> All right, listeners, if I'm getting it wrong, please tell me. Um, but the idea being that you you should you should reach for the narrower of the legal principles. I also think that it's something about like trying to grasp for too much and you end up with nothing. Um, And this one has been bouncing around in my head a lot because my son is now at this stage where he's grabbing for things he's like reaching for things sometimes his arms are like so far out and his hands are grabbing for this huge thing and then he totally misses it and he just comes up with his own fingers and i just keep telling him to te Fasta maruba lo
0: te fasta. <laughs> yeah.
2: so I, I love this That's phrase awesome. right
0: now mine is also i it's i'm gonna say cute but not adorable um uh, and it's also from Esther, actually. Well, it's kind of from Esther. So at the end of the book of Esther, um, there's a pasuk, haita, orav, chav, And, vikar. and uh, the Jews had light and happiness and joy and value. And we say that line in Havdalah at the end of Shabbat each week. And we say, haita, orav, chav, And vikar say, and the Jews had light and warmth and happiness and value. So should we have that? And um, we have a paper cut that uh, my mom made for me before she died of that phrase in um, in my house. And I just, I think it's, uh, it's like, I mean, <laughs> setting it aside from like what's actually happening at the end of the Book of Esther, which is obviously violence and problematic in a lot of ways. The idea of like this was a moment of a kind of like literally bright, shining moment. Um, And that we should be able to have that for ourselves is something that I, um, I just find to be a kind of nice thing. And I saw it on a ketubah of some friends. They had, um, they had that pesouf on the top of their ketubah. And I, and they had it because like they spent a lot of Shabbatot together And they like often did have Dala together and it seemed, and it was something that they kind of um, like connected on together. And I just thought like, oh, I, you don't hear that people kind of like use that line very often, but it is like such a beautiful sentiment and it's great for like wedding gifts.
1: (laughs) The last line that I had in mind, and I don't know if this is cheating because it's neither, biblical nor Talmudic. Um, but so the Ibn Ezra, the, um, the biblical commentator in the introduction to his commentary on the Torah, um, he's explaining his interpretive philosophy basically. And there's this line that I've remembered, I think, I think I've only like learned this to use a very Jewy phrase, learned this inside once. Um, Like, I think I've only actually like learned in a systematic way, this, this introduction to his commentary, just the one time, but this one line has always stuck with me. The angel that mediates between man and his God is his intellect. And I love this notion um, because Jewish commentators are all over the place on what a malach, what an angel or a godly messenger, what that is, whether it's, you know, a thing with feathers or uh, just any natural force that God sends into the world to act or, you know, what it really means. But this rendering of it, that the the angel, this mediator between God and man is human intellect. And that it's such a notion of striving um, for a, a, a Torah commentator to put that right at the front of his effort to understand Torah in the greatest possible depth and to make his original contribution to the entirety of the Torah, which is such an incredible undertaking and to say, this, this isn't just a, an exercise in, in intellectual vanity. It's, this is me connecting to God. And the thing that connects me to God is my effort to understand. The thing that connects me to God is the power that I've been given to understand and to analyze and to think through. Um, and I think I first encountered this towards the beginning of college and it was a really meaningful um, notion to me sort of at the outset of a an effort of higher learning, but just the notion that that actually is a spiritual experience that you're having, because I think often, and this is I think, especially a problem in modern orthodoxy, which is my my community, that often the intellectual exercise of learning becomes its own end in Jewish text study. Um, hmm. And this is, I think, especially a problem in Talmud study, but in general. And so the notion that the Ibn Ezra, who is, you know, a very textual commentator, not given to these sort of flights of fancy, is... Saying this is this is my spiritual enterprise. This is my connection. This is the angel that I'm sending up to God, and that God sends back to me, is such a beautiful notion to me, and something that I've always really loved and learning since then.
2: I like that. That is nice. Um. All right, I'll give a last one. Again, I'm not sure that I. This is just a line that got stuck in my head and I I don't know what the the hook is for me necessarily um but there's a line in Jeremiah before I created you in the womb I selected you before you were born I consecrated you um I appointed you a prophet of, among the nations and I yeah I guess there's just in part, there's the sentence structure, before I created you in the womb, I selected you before this, I, that. Um, but I, I think it struck my fancy, this notion of being known before you were created and being selected and chosen. Um, yeah, has just... It's it's a, another like stone that's very worn in my memory because I touch it often. Not sure why. If other people like it, let me know why <laughs> I, <laughs> I would love a, a reason.
0: I, I mean, I love um, Jeremiah. I studied um, Jeremiah when I was a sophomore in high school, and I really did not anticipate liking it Mm -hmm. and I loved it and I found it so like weird and interesting and evocative. And I think about what I think about that class and what I learned in it all the time. Um, and I think like in particular, like the whole prophecy that, um, that Jeremiah gets, uh, of the fact that he was like chosen when he was in the womb, but actually like, it's not like he starts as a prophet. When he's very young. Um, so it's this idea of like at, at the, all of the images in it. Like there's a a boiling pot at one point, and there's an al- um an almond plant that comes out of a rod. And it's just very um it's beautiful and and troubling because what he has to do is go and, you know, he has a Jeremiah. It comes from Jeremiah, like has to go mm-hmm. tell everyone that they're doing everything wrong. Um and yeah, it's It's beautiful. Um, So mine is a word, (laughs) a single word that I find to be very useful. I had a teacher in high school who used to say, if somebody asks you, like, what is the rule on any issue of Jewish law? And you don't know, you should always just say it's a machloket, which means like there's a, there's a dispute, like there's two, two or more ideas about what the answer is Um, because as this rabbi said, like there's always a machloka, which is true. Like we basically (laughs) never hear about uh, a law where it's like, this is the law and nobody had any differences of opinion about how it should be enacted. (laughs) It was just so Um, clear. (laughs) (laughs) Right. L O L. Um, But I, but I think about like, there's been so many times in my non Jewish life where I've been like, I want to be when someone asks me a question and I want to be like, it's a machloket, meaning like the answer is not definitive. Like there's different answers depending on who you ask. Um, and I like find that to be a very useful <laughs> idea. And it's kind of weird to me that there doesn't seem to be an easy way to convey it in English. Mm-hmm. And I, I find myself often in work settings, trying to, like explain that there's like a bunch of different ideas. And what I want to say is like, it seems like there's a machloket, um, <laughs> but I can't. <laughs> so I'm always like, uh, there's like different understandings. of. It's like, I just want there to be one word. <laughs> so, yeah. And also like a machloket is also just like the basis of like all Jewish conflict as well. Um, so yeah, it's useful. Although not obviously something that I would necessarily strive for, not (laughs) aspirational.
1: That was really fun. Thank you, guys. Um, Yeah, I feel like you can get a little bit of a a glimpse into personality this way, and it's really nice.
0: All right. Well, we would love to hear what uh, your favorite Jewish psukim and aphorisms and um, (laughs) words are. Um, I find I found this super inspiring in a kind of like literal, like it made me think all kinds of new ways. Uh, So yeah, we'd like to hear from from all of you. I think now it has come time for endorsements. Zahava, would you like to endorse? Sure. So my endorsement
1: uh, arises from our last segment. And this is um, when I was thinking through various psukim, one that perhaps doesn't mean as much to me as it should or could is um the the Pasuk hamalah Hagoel Otimi Arim. So the this is a speech that Jacob Yaakov makes um by the way of blessing at his two grandsons, Menasha and Ephraim, and it's about it this closing blessing to me, like the meaning has always been beside the point because it doesn't function in my life or I think in a lot of people's lives as like a, a verse from Tanakh, it functions as sort of like a, a bedtime song. Um, so it's, traditional for people to sing this in like a very lullaby tune, um, at bedtime with kids. And it's something that I now do with my daughter. It's part of the like baby bedtime routine that cues for her that it's time to sleep. Um, and it occurred to me as I was thinking through verses for our last discussion that actually I had given this one essentially no thought ever, despite it being one of the things that I have probably known to recite the longest. I mean, I don't remember a time when I didn't know all the words to that. Um, so it inspired me to spend a little bit of time starting to look up commentaries on it and do a little bit of reading um, because it mentions an angel. As I said earlier, angels always inspire a lot of vociferous, uh, like here's what an angel really is kind of notion. So. Um, Reading the Rev Hirsch about that was interesting. There's a passage from, from Maimonides' Guide to um, guide for the Perplexed about it. Um, I was looking at um, Rabbi Tzvi Gromet's uh, relatively new book on Genesis that's part of the Magid uh, series of Tanakh commentaries, Magid being the publisher. They've done a, a great series that's very much still in progress of different Torah teachers, each writing about a different book of Tanakh. And so, just exploring it has been really interesting. I'm just getting started. I feel like I'm on the path to preparing a sheer, like a class um, called Hamalach HaGoel, More Than a Lullaby, or something like that. Um, but the endorsement really is think about what Jewish text, prayer, idea just goes back so far in your life that you've actually never thought that hard about it, and go and look into it. I've been really enjoying it. Just pick something i think many of us have something like that or many more than one thing like that in our lives and it's been um cool to start going down that rabbit hole
2: i really love doing that doing a version of that with songs you know like just even zahava the loa lecha Ham colleague more there, I have that in my head as a song frequently. And then everyone's like, oh, right. No, those are that's a real thing. Like, that's an interesting idea that I just sing to myself like it's a ditty. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love that.
0: All right. Mimi, what do you have to endorse?
2: So I wanted to endorse... Um, I actually wanted to endorse Tiffany Haddish's um, Jewish genealogy story. If I felt unsatisfied with any like takeaways or lack of transformation that um, that we saw in the PBS um, show, this story really has um, just like a remarkable journey to it. Tiffany Haddish is an African-American comedian um, who discovered that her father was an Eritrean Jew and that started a whole journey learning. Um, She had a bat mitzvah, she's converted, she had a bat mitzvah, or maybe she didn't convert, she didn't need to. Um, But it's just... I thought it was really beautiful and a lot of fun. There's an article in Hey Alma that I'll link to. Um, I also watched her stand-up special Black Mitzvah. And I wouldn't say you have to watch it. It's not one of my favorite comedy specials, but she does have some really good lines about um, finding herself on... She had basically done the bar and bat mitzvah circuit as a comedian for many years and was always labeled an outsider at these bar and bat mitzvah parties. And now here she is like claiming her Jewish identity and belonging in this community. And you can't tell me anymore that I don't belong here. And just a beautiful, empowering story that starts off with finding out who your people are. So, yeah, a lot of fun. Well,
0: cool. I've been meaning to watch Black Mitzvah, so I totally have to check that out. I want to start by reiterating an endorsement that Zahava made like a super long time ago. She endorsed, I can't remember if you endorsed the book, The Color of Law, or if you endorsed something else by um, Richard Rothstein, Zahava. And that's how I found out. If- I think I did endorse the book at one point. Yeah. yeah. So I just finished reading the book. Uh, So I want to just co-sign on that endorsement. It's really good. And it's just an incredible work of history. Um, It's not particularly Jewish, but it's really excellent. Um, So then my next endorsement is also kind of not an endorsement. There's a show on Netflix right now called Messiah, which is... I thought that it was going to be more of a like, look into like, what is religion, but I think it's more like a show about like a modern day Jesus. It's about like, a guy in the Middle East who like leads people into the wilderness. And then he like, shows up on the Temple Mount magically. And then he shows up in Texas magically and saves somebody from a tornado. And then like, there's a caravan of people following him around and like, what's gonna happen? I don't know. I have not seen it actually say anything really profound about religion, which is kind of disappointing, but it does like take place in a lot of places in Israel. There's like a lot of Israeli actors in it. And um, it's kind of fun just for that reason. Um, And I don't know. It makes me a little itchy in its depiction of religious life, but I, I'm it's the kind of thing that I'm happy to watch while I'm like at the gym. Um, that's my half-hearted endorsement. And my real endorsement is for, um, the commentators Bible, which is now a full set. So you can buy it for, um, every book of the Torah. And it is, uh, basically Mikra Okido which are, uh, the Torah with like a lot of commentators, um, but it's fully translated into English. Um, so, and it's all on one page. So like there have been people who like went and translated all of Ramban, Nachmanides and all of Ramban, Maimonides and all of Rashi. But, um, this is the only book that I know of that actually, um, brings all of those commentators together onto one page, the way that you would find in Mikro Um, and it is so beautifully and carefully done. Um, and I mean, I really like learning in Hebrew and I think it's important for me for keeping up my, um, Hebrew learning skills, but to be able to like find something kind of weird in a text and just like want to be like, well, what are, what do people think about this? What are the different commentators takes on it? And to have that be something that you can kind of skim over and not, that I can kind of devote less brain space to and I can just like see the different opinions quickly has been really lovely. Um, I guess full disclosure that I know Michael Saracic a very little bit. Um, he is here in Philadelphia. Um, but, uh, my love for these books is, uh, separate from, (laughs) from, from my knowing him and, uh, yeah, I highly recommend picking them up. My partner who is not, historically been super into jewish learning um <laughs> one day recently i came downstairs and he was like do you want to know what Sfarim i bought or do you want me or do you want it to be a surprise and i was like i'm yeah. i'm really surprised that you just bought a bunch of Sfarim. so i'm, I'm already <laughs> very surprised um but yeah he we had already owned brajit and he bought um all of the rest of the books because he liked them so much so i feel like that's a bonus endorsement Thanks for listening. Uh, If you have a minute, it would be great if you could leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss on a future episode. You can also give us feedback on this episode. Thank you to the couple of people who sent me um, ideas about what is actually happening with the sheep and the goats. I appreciated uh, the feedback (laughs) and thought That went into those Um, You can leave a comment on a post On our Facebook page You can search for Jewish Public Media um, Or on our website jpmedia.co Just choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts You can also donate to Jewish Public Media At jpmedia.co Which is a really great way to support our show And ensure that we're able to Continue bringing you new episodes Thank you Mimi Thank you Thank you Zahava Thank you both And we'll see you next month.